never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Another fantastic day for an interview. And our guest today, Guy Morris, I struggled to think about one interview I want to do with him. Because when I looked his, it looked him up and then stalked him a little bit, resume kind of wise, there were so many things I wanted to talk about. Because he is a man who who literally lived the, the American dream, if you wanted to say it like that, the rags to riches. Um, he is also a man who has reinvented himself multiple times uh, in different careers. Here's a man who has got the foresight of thinking about our future in amazing ways. So we could talk about anything, but to and I give you already a little hint, he might be coming back because there are other things I want to I want to tease out about him. But today I want to focus on his absolute amazing and challenging change from a young boy living up in in not so nice circumstances towards a man who's who's leaving uh, a destiny yet there have been a lot of dark times and i want to know how the hell do you deal with these times so guy thank you so much for coming on to my show steven such an honor to be with you thank you so much for having me i appreciate it <laughs> absolutely man um we all have have childhoods that maybe are not as ideal very few people grow up literally behind a white picket fence and there is a white picket fence and happiness mm -hmm. behind it bullshit most of us most of our families our parents they don't get up in the morning to try to think well how can i fuck up my children um but they do their best under the circumstances whatever is happening but it's often leaves scars on us that does the case in my life was that similar in your life? Absolutely. And I think it took me most of my life um, to realize that you can't necessarily, ignoring the scars doesn't make them go away. Huh. Uh, ignoring the scars doesn't mean that you're, you've healed from them or that you're healthy uh, now. Um, the, it's the, there's a, a, somebody said the only way through is to go through. And, uh, and I think there's a truth to that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I didn't, wasn't diagnosed until my late fifties that I had complex post-traumatic stress. Now my entire life, I knew that I had quote unquote issues. Um, I, I struggled with addiction. I struggled with chronic depression. I had hyper anxiety. I had crippling social anxieties. Um, the uh, uh, brilliant uh, at work, um, an absolute wallflower in a social situa situation because I never felt like I could fit in anywhere, like I belonged anywhere, that I could be accepted anywhere. I was always felt like I was hiding some part of myself that if people only knew the real me, I wouldn't be um, I wouldn't be getting the promotions and the raises. Um, so yeah, I, 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 the, it's funny how a few short years at the beginning of our life can have profound implications on us for the remainder of our life. And, mm -hmm. and until we make that choice, and it's not a point in time, it's a lifestyle choice. Until we make that lifestyle choice that we do not want to have our past to define our future. And that that's not just a single decision. It's not just, oh, I'm going to quit drinking now and poof, that happens, or I'm going to change. I'm not going to take my mom's attitude toward life and, and incorporate that into my philosophies. You know, it's it's a hundred different decisions. It's a thousand different decisions that can sometimes take the rest of your life to work out how you're going to execute on that decision. And but it can make a profound change. Is it mm. the question would be, is it worth that much effort? Why not? And there and there was a there was a time in my life I thought, you know what, it's it's a this is too much work. I'll just I'll just stay messed up. It's easier. <laughs> Except it it was easy on one level, but it was a lot more yeah. there was a there was a much deeper, higher cost on another level. 
let's yeah. let's be quite clear though that we call it messed up maybe with the eyes of hindsight when we are however the first time taking a sip and you change and suddenly the world is either no longer as painful or suddenly advantages happen and a new life opens up now that is revolutionary uh, what was your first yeah. experience when with, with sort of maybe mind-altering behavior or mind-altering substances well what, what my what my first experience mean with um before i had decided that i wanted to change my life i started taking mind-altering substances and drinking a lot when i was 11 um i i I try to tell people that my journey began as a homeless runaway at age 13 on the streets of LA. And I worked alongside migrant workers so I could survive. I tried to pretend for many years that anything before that was just a past life. It was an apparition. And in fact, I had pretty broad amnesia mm. over a good part of my childhood. Um, when I finally did get an opportunity to go to college, which was a, a miracle in and of itself, I got a copy of my transcripts and I realized that before I had dropped out of school in the 10th grade, I had already been to 16 different schools wow. and I couldn't remember two thirds of them. Um, wow. They just were complete. I had no memory of them whatsoever. And so when we heal, we have to realize that sometimes we are, it's going to come at its own pace. I wanted to just snap my fingers and instantly have it all behind me. <laughs> just like that. It doesn't quite work out that way. <laughs> it takes a little bit more patience and persistence uh, and 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 intention uh, uh, than that. I strongly believe that that uh, trauma comes in layers, and yeah. equally, your healing will happen in layers. You sort of scrape one bit of the onion away and you think, oh, there's a bit of pus there. There's a bit of uh, yucky stuff there. So you deal with that. And then, okay, see, now the onion is good. Yeah, next layer. And you think, oh, shit. <laughs> so you sometimes have to heal and, and kind of you know recuperate a little bit in between those layers. You can't mm. even do them all at once. You have to, to absorb that that those lessons and that, mm. the, that, that healing mm. yeah. before you're ready for the next one. Sure. Sure. But yeah, initially, that's, that's okay that you, we go through that process, you know, because absolutely. it's, I don't think we could go from zero to, to 60 and into, you know, in two steps and, no. and not lose something in the process. It's, it's, it's as much about the process itself as the destination in that case. Problem, of course, is we don't know the destination when we're in the middle of the mess. Initially. No, no. But initially, you knew that the alcohol was there. What did the alcohol give you? Um, I'm not. I'm not quite sure. I understand the. the, the is, there's a reason that you were drinking. Was the pain going away? Was the were you changing into an alter ego, um, who was now more outgoing? able to to talk to the girls or the boys or whatever you, you know all of the above i wanted to i came from an extremely violent um abusive um vulgar dysfunctional childhood um i i don't like to go into the details because it can get triggering but um mm. you know as i i was told by one psychologist that i was probably at you know like one tenth of one percent of people experience that kind of baloney. And I, I, as I said, I, I had shut down. I, I, by the time I was 12, I was an addict. Um, mm. By the time I was 13, I was homeless. Um, I, I, I was absolutely trying to do anything to escape the reality I was living mm. because I felt that there was a hopelessness in everything that was being laid out before me. Mm. I didn't see any path out of the extreme poverty. I didn't see any path. I, the only path I could see out of the the violent and, and the home situation was to leave. Hmm. And even if that meant as a 13-year-old sleeping under uh, freeway bridges, um, sleeping in the backs of cars that weren't locked, sleeping in sometimes if it was raining in garbage cans to stay hmm. out of the rain. Hmm. Um, it, it, it That to me was a better option on many levels as traumatic as that was 
than being at home and never feeling safe, even through the middle of the night. And so I wanted to, I wanted to, there, there was a movie that came out about 10 years ago, maybe more. It was called A Knight's Tale. It had uh, Heath, um, Heath Ledger in it. And there was a line in the movie. And, and the basic plot of the movie is a, a pauper kid who has no hope, no, no education, no, is, a, is a serf to a knight. And the knight's an old knight and he dies. And so in order to eat, he has to pretend to be a knight in mm. order for them to go to tournaments so that they can get money to eat. Mm. And, and when he's caught, he basically says, I just want it to change my stars. I didn't want to believe, and, and for me, I didn't want to believe that I was doomed to this um, dysfunctional, violent, alcoholic, drug-addicted, mm. promiscuous lifestyle that other people were able to change. Why not me? And I didn't know how. I didn't know what that would look like. I had no particular role models per se because mm. I'd grown up with without any parents. It was more of an internal, just deep desire that I didn't want my past to define my future for me. I want if I was going to fail, and there was a real good chance that I would. I wanted it to be on my terms. I didn't want it to be something mm. that was dictated to me that this is who you're going to be. Love it. How old were you then when this this desire started appearing? Um, around 12, 13 years old. Right. Okay. Um, and and then I I went home. I was gone for about six months. I went home for about a year to get my GED, which is a sort of a high school equivalent. Um, but I was still functionally illiterate. It was just, and I got the GED because of all my work credits. I got school credits for for basically working. And so while I was all that time that I was working, I was mm -hmm. didn't realize I was earning school credits. So they let me go. They let me graduate with a GED, but I was still had had really no right. educational skills whatsoever. Um, and so when I had an opportunity to get I was accepted into college by an absolute miracle. I had to, the first couple of years was me teaching myself how to read and teaching myself how to show wow. up and how to get study habits. Wow. And I, it, by the time I graduated, but I wasn't sleeping. I, I, I was so obsessed that this was my, my one chance. This was the chance for me to basically make a big difference in my life. And so I, I would, I would sleep maybe three, four hours a night. And I was working. I had to support my own needs. I was married. I had a toddler. So I had to be a father, I had to be a provider. And then I had to go to school and take a full credit. And I had to do well because this was my only chance that I was ever going to get in life to make something of myself. Now, I ultimately graduated with multiple degrees at the top of the dean's list. I got a full scholarship to go to the school I was at, which was Arizona. I got accepted into Harvard, but I couldn't afford the tuition, so I didn't go there. Um, and um, all of that was because I had created a macroeconomic model that outperformed the U.S. Federal Reserve and pretty much every other um, school <laughs> in the nation. <laughs> the, past, the past does not equal the future, does it? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that certainly got a lot of people's attention. Shit, yeah. Um, so hang on, hang on, hang on. Half, no, I would say ninety-five percent of the of of the people listening, including myself, have no freaking clue what a macroeconomic model is. Um, so maybe, maybe, maybe go a bit there into depth. Yeah, I, you know, everyone hears about the computer model that predicts climate change, or the computer mm. model that predicts where the market's going, or the computer model that predicts something. And when we talk about artificial intelligence, it's essentially computer models using um, certain mathematical and probability uh, algorithms and techniques mm -hmm. to take existing data and then project where the next next data point is going to mm -hmm. fall. 
And we do that with economics, how to predict how much, what the GNP or the gross national product is going to be this next coming quarter and the quarter after mm -hmm. that. And what's mm -hmm. the interest rate going to be and how's that going to affect unemployment? And trillions of dollars are based on guessing these models correctly. Um, because if I'm off and I make a business decision based on bad data, somebody's going to make more money than me. Yeah. And, and, and we know that that greed drives a lot of bad behavior. Um, and so I had actually developed the model. I was the first one to prove that there was a, um, a mathematical link, that there was a di direct link between the productivity of our technology sales and the productivity of what was happening in the economy. So all of the 80s and 90s, economists talked about the productivity of technology. Those were all based on the model that I had created back in the um, early 80s. Wow. How did you get to that? I mean, there's this, you don't just wake up and think, hey, I should do a macroeconomic model. Um, well, it was part of my grad. It was what I had to do to, to graduate. Now I right. had, I wanted to go to grad school. And so I made a, I made a wager with the Dean of the college that if I could, if my mom, and he basically graded on a curve. So the closer you were to the actual numbers, the better your grade, the further away from the actual numbers, the worse your grade. And so he was going to grade the whole class on a curve. I said, well, if I can beat the whole class, I said, will you consider me for a scholarship? Because I was at that point, I was out of money. I wanted to go to grad school. I, uh, and, uh, uh, uh. and he kind of hemmed and hawed and said he would, he might consider it. And that was, again, that, that sense of, I have to invest in my own future. No one's going to just give me the money. I have to prove myself. I have to be, <laughs> do something of value for them. Yeah. And so I spent months, literally months, um, going to the data center. This is back when you didn't have a personal computer. If you wanted to get to the computer, you had to go to a big data center, huh. typically a basement room with no windows, and you got this terminal. Yep. And <laughs> you either had to wait in line to get the terminal or oh, you know, yeah. the terminal. And so I would go at midnight because all the other kids uh, were going home at that point. And I would work from midnight to my first class at eight o'clock in the morning, almost every night for months, um, determined that I was going to prove this new theory that I had developed. And, uh, and, and I did. But at the same time, I got really ill. I, I, uh, weeks before I was supposed to graduate, I got valley fever. I was actually in bed for four months. Um, and I had to get I had to get an incomplete on some of my courses so I could take finish them in the summer um, just to graduate. Um, mm. But he basically he saw that I was sick and not a, it, it still worked out. I need probably needed I, I probably needed to sleep at that point anyway, needed the rest. <laughs> but um, it, but yeah, that got me into grad school. Wow. Wow. But again, you you were a go getter. And I think there are children who have gone through through hard childhoods and they develop certain features, traits. Self-reliance. Um, exactly. The self-reliance. There's, there's a, a subconscious, intuitive belief that no one's going to do it for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, no one's going to just come along and make it easy mm. and to say, oh, I'll do it for you. No, no one's going to make uh, give you that chance. If you don't really put in that extra layer of, of effort, um, it, you know, it's just not going to happen. And, and I could see that there were so many other people in business mm. and in the schools whose daddies were wealthy and bought them a really nice car and they were just slacking off because they just, to them, they took for granted that the money would always be there. And for me, I could never, ever take that for granted. Hmm. And so that sense of having to be the thought leader, the innovator followed me throughout my career. Hmm. So I was on the leading edge of a number of technologies in the enterprise from desktop computing to computer modeling to using the internet for international communications. I had teams in five continents and I had to communicate with them. Our early stage of artificial intelligence, um, cloud services, um, large projects, complex projects with new technologies. I developed a, a track record of going in and, and um, looking at how to take 
um, leading edge technology and figure out how to use that in order to make a real difference in how the business operated. Wow. Wow. And of course, you are defining yourself with your achievements. I often say that I was a workaholic far before I became an alcoholic. Um, but with you, you started damn early. <laughs> I think we can't we can't give you that credit. But you certainly do. Would you call yourself a workaholic? Um, that that could apply. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> even today when I'm retired, I'll get up in the morning, yeah. I get a piece of toast, a half a banana, and my cup of coffee, I boot up and, and that's I'm I'm at my desk <laughs> until some, my bedtime is typically two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> but for me, there's it comes from a couple of different things. One is I I felt like my life I I was I was redeemed from a really horrible life. If I hadn't gone to college, I would have had no money, no education, mm. no training. Um, and, and, and then to still have to deal with all the PTSD in terms of addiction and, and, and all the psychological damage that was done from that, it would have, I, I, I had a chance to change my stars and not many people get to. And so I've, I've always felt an obligation that, God didn't do that so I could just slack off and go watch TV or go to a movie mm. or get an extra DVD or, you know, buy that extra movie channel or, mm. you know, uh, that. And so there's there's this somewhat internal sense of. I, I, I this is for a purpose I need to I need to discover and be faithful to that purpose. And then there's a certain point in time when the mind gets stimulated to the point to a certain level where at least for me it become a became a craving i always wanted to learn more i always wanted to do that oh, extra thing love it, it wasn't that i was doing the same thing i was always wanting to do something new i was always wanting to say oh wow wouldn't it be cool if i could explore that or, or wouldn't it be cool if I, oh, let me go learn more about this other thing, or let me go travel so I can get to know that other culture. Um, I got a Coast Guard um, charter captain license because I had a, I was living on a big sailboat, and if I was going to do that, I might as well do it well. Excellent. Um, oh, you and me, we I, I'm, we need to look at in our ancestry. We so are alike. It's yeah. uh, a day where I don't learn something new is a sad day for me. Um, at, oh, I love it. I love your, your spark of love. But drive I mean, for yes. discovery um, yep. actually feeds my books. Nice. And it keeps me stimulated and it keeps me excited to get, you know, I yeah. boredom to me is, is, <laughs> is, is the addict's Achilles heel. Oh, nice one. Nice one. Uh, let me go back though to that okay. before we, before we dive into your new life. Um, we were talking 80s here, and 80s were renowned for being very wet. It was a wet decade as far as business was concerned. Here you were becoming more and more um, successful. Inevitably, there was pressure to uh, to also be seen in the crowd, to, and drink was part and parcel of that. So how did you... How did your attitude towards alcohol, your relationship with alcohol and drugs, how did that change? I was a single parent. And at that point, by the time the 80s had run around, my first marriage had fallen apart. Hmm. Um, I had lost custody of my daughter, but gained custody of my son because he was the troublemaker. My ex-wife didn't want to deal with that. <laughs> um, and... I I was drinking a lot. I was very promiscuous. I was doing drugs. I was doing extremely well at work. I was falling mm. apart at home. Mm. And I think there was a, an incident where I, I had to break up with a woman because I realized that she was really not healthy for my son. Mm. And all of a sudden, I realized I saw him I saw myself, I saw my mother in my act, in my actions. Ooh. I realized that as much as I hated my own childhood, mm. I was becoming 
I was becoming that what I which I hated. Um, wow. I was self-absorbed. I was never home because I was always either out working or out drinking. Um, I, I, and that realization that I was gonna I was gonna do to him what I, what was, and and I, I wasn't violent. I mean, it didn't have, and I justified that, that I was okay because it wasn't as bad. Mm. But I, I had to come to the, the to face the truth that it doesn't matter if it's as bad, it's still bad. Mm. I was still leaving him with a legacy that he deserved better. Mm. I was still, I, I didn't want to become, I didn't want to continue to slide into that sense of um, alcoholic delusion that somehow it wasn't as bad as it was. And so I, I realized I, I, the first thing I had to do, my first step mm. was mm. to deal with the alcohol. And so I, I was going to some therapy at the time, but because I had PTSD and nobody really understood PTSD back then, the therapy the therapist was really kind of misdirecting a lot of different things. And I don't think it was really helping that much. I did. So I actually joined a 12 step program and mm found at least some courage among others who were struggling with this same um, issue to to get to get sober mm. and but I still getting sober from alcohol didn't to, totally get me off of all the drugs it didn't get me from being promiscuous it had to be a repetitive reiterate iterative you know okay now I've got to deal with this problem and the hardest part of recovery, but it's the most important part for me, was the willingness to be able to examine myself with a rigorous self-honesty and not make excuses. Mm -hmm. And if I couldn't see myself as the man that I was, I was never going to have a chance to change myself into the man I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And so it was my son um, wanting to be realizing that I, I I loved him and I didn't want to leave him what um, give him what I had gotten mm. in terms of a childhood. And so I was going to do whatever it took to um, to change. and it and and even if it took a decade, um, that would be a decade. It, you know, it would be better than not doing it at all. Beautiful. So, mm. yeah. Wow. Wow. So you ditched the alcohol. And that for sure was not a straightforward trajectory. No, Margot. No, I'm just fine now. <laughs> yeah, about that. I wanted to believe that. Yes. <laughs> okay, but I love to say if I love I could to moderate the behavior. I could ignore the reason for the behavior. At least. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work, does it? Because we're addicts. It's just you know, you stop drinking, then you you eat sugar until the cows come home, and then if you stop the sugar, then you're smoking like a chimney. <laughs> so yeah, well, just... and I so I was slowly. I smoked, I, I lived on a boat, so it was easy for me to smoke cigars, a lot of cigars, because the, you know, if I was sailing, the, the smell would always go behind us. But yeah, it took me, <laughs> it took me several years before I started realizing, okay, well, this is unhealthy too. And hmm. okay, well, this is unhealthy too. And, and the acceptance of myself as not just an alcoholic, but as an addict, um, slowly allowed me to address the other dysfunctional behaviors and addictions including dating women that weren't mm -hmm. appropriate um and and to try and get to get to those now i wasn't able to fully get to some of the issues because they were buried in amnesia mm -hmm. uh, that i'd had from my childhood and and i couldn't really necessarily deal with the pain of a situation I couldn't even really remember except in really weird foggy fragmented flashbacks um it wasn't until my 50s when um my I was actually my brother um passed away but a few months before he passed away he was a navy vet and he had been in counseling as a navy vet for PTSD for a number of years until he finally called me up and he said you know what my my my, my, I've been, and I knew he'd been working on the PTSD. And he said, PTSD didn't come from the war. It came from our childhood. Have wow. you ever dealt with that? Wow. I said, no, I never even thought about it. I, and I said, I, I, and, and, 
It wasn't until I think he really kind of got me along the path to investigate that that all the pieces fell into place. And then I could start actually finally dealing with the the deeper wounds that were the roots of all those other things. And that was that, but had I not dealt with all those other things first, had I not also been more been relatively successful at that point at getting clean and sober and where I was still Mm -hmm. dealing with a lot of the emotional stuff, but at least I was moderating some of the behaviors that weren't making it worse. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't done that would have been even harder, but um, so I I don't regret it, but it's, I, I do wish I had been able to, we all wish that we could have been able to get he- healed, um, become whole before we had done all the damage. But mm-hmm. I had to I had to deal with the damage and accept accountability. But uh, it took a while, but I got there, and I'm still working mm-hmm. on it. But I, I feel like I'm I've got it. The, mm-hmm. the I've actually been dealing with the real issues the last several years, and and that's really brought in a tremendous amount of peace. Mm-hmm. I don't really feel anymore that this addictive monster is just sitting on my shoulder waiting for me to mess up all the time. Mm, yeah. But then again, here you are. If you you have already started to to describe a little bit your daily uh, habits um, that you put in place, which means you're getting up in the morning, you're having food, um, you have got you've developed a purpose you have there are already four or five things that speak out which uh when we are in the midst of addiction when we are uh, when we are thinking about the the bad old times there was none of that there <laughs> so here you are you have started to put um let's rephrase that every decision we make uh is either pulling us closer to a lapse or a relapse or is pushing us away from it. And uh, if you're not thinking about addiction, if you just think about mental well-being versus mental illness, it's the same thing. Um, There are certain habits that will get you, that will more or less assure you to head away or head towards a really beautiful life, or you can create a really bad life just by the decisions that you make you have developed the insight that you have the the privilege of choice you made that happen and that is so important when did you start realizing that you have to make changes when when did you actually ditch the alcohol in relation to your life and in which kind of decade of your life i was probably in my early 30s nice before i finally started accepting the fact that i had become an alcoholic i wouldn't was probably even willing to admit it until then and it wasn't until actually i dealt with the alcohol that i started to actually start understanding the other issues that were going along with that Mm. and feeding that and Mm. i and i had again no real idea how Mm. to move past these things at that point just a deep desire that i wanted to Mm. But so that was the alcohol and then, but it took you 20 years to then uh, realize the impact that your childhood really had. And it just shows the the healing that, that comes in the layers. It, you yeah. can't get it all done in one yeah. year, it, it, one it month. Years. Well, it took also 20 years for me to also realize that um, it was deeper that, okay, now that I've got it, you know, I would, when you were, I was, had no job skills and I had no jobs and I was hungry and I was mm. cold and, and my clothes were ragged, you know, you're just hoping for a better job. And when you get, you know, then when I go to college and I realize I can not only just have a better job, I can have a better career. And when you start actually earning that and, and achieving some things there, mm. then you're realizing oh, wait a minute, why am, why am I still why am I still depressed? Why am I still hyper anxious? Why am I still drinking? Why you start to realize, well, wait a minute, I had those things I thought I needed. That wasn't enough. What what now? What what is it? And it took a little bit of time for me to get over the delusion that my my drugs and alcohol and other issues were just a a factor of circumstances, right? That that there was actually something deeper there that I needed to address. And 
even then I didn't really want to, those were very, very painful experiences. I wanted to do anything I could to just deal with these surface stuff and then stay in my head without having to really search my heart mm. and go through that pain and understanding that pain again. I didn't want to do that, even though that was the thing that I needed to do to get past the pain. Mm. I had to go through it to get past it. Mm. And um, just getting to that acceptance without saying, well, I can just do this one thing over here, or I can mm. just do this other thing over there, or I can, I just need some new friends, or maybe I should go to church or, you know, this or that, you know, and did tons of things to cover up the pain. And when the pain persisted, I had to, I had to take it. I had to find another way of saying, well, there's something else that, obviously that I'm not addressing what what's going to deal with this and mm. and at one point just saying okay this is that's my karma my karma is to be one of those guys who lives in pain I'm okay I, I certainly have a job I, I can I'm, I'm not starving anymore it's I'm not as bad as I used to be so therefore I, I should just take my you know take what I got and and be happy with it but there's also a part of you that just doesn't want to do that this just says no I really want to get rid of this pain mm. And um, but not not medicated, not self-medicated away, not try and ignore it away, not try and be overindulgent to 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 distract myself. So I'm not thinking about it. I want to actually deal with that at its roots. And that took time to get to the point where I was both ready and had some idea of how to make that step forward because it wasn't always intuitive. Were there people in your life that ended up guiding you? How did you meet those people? Well, I had one girlfriend at the time who um, basically told me that if I didn't go to, um, I was cheating on her. And if I didn't go take care of the problem that we were done. And so that was kind of a motivation and thinking I would just go to this, you know, 12 step group for a little while. And that would be, you know, for sex, um, sexaholics and and that would just kind of take care of that and that would be over but then going through that made me realize that I really had some deeper issues there that I wasn't really happy with myself and proud of myself about and so I had to really go through some changes my second wife has been my angel she she um I had gone through several of these 12-step programs and I was getting clean and sober and I was still pretty active but I I still had hyper insecurities. And I remember we were, we started dating and about two or three weeks into this. I kept thinking, okay, this one could get serious. I said, she's a really, really nice girl. I says, I don't want to be the guy that, that, you know, lies to her and doesn't tell her about his past. And she, until, she, so I told her everything, you know, I told, I basically just did the whole big, you know, you're really nice and, and expecting her to say, well, I can't see you anymore. You're mm -hmm. not the kind, you know, I, I think, you know, we need to take a step back. I was ready for the take a step back conversation. And she was like, you know, and her whole attitude was, I, thanks for telling me, but you know, that's not going to scare me away. And I was just like, okay, now that's scaring me. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. How old so, were you then? Uh, I was, well, I was probably in my late thirties by then. Um, nice, nice. So this has been several years of trying to get my 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 life in, in a better place and mm -hmm. and get my my son in a better place and and um, but I I didn't want to hurt her. I didn't want to I didn't want to continue to hurt people out of just being selfish for what I wanted needed, and I felt mm -hmm. that I couldn't move forward without being honest with her about mm -hmm. the, the struggles that I and I that I continued to have. I said mm -hmm. and I said I, I'm through these things, but I said I still have. I still have all these things that I'm trying to deal with and I don't know how to deal with. And, mm. and, you know, I, you're a really nice girl. You should go find a really nice guy, you know? And she thought she took that as a challenge. She said, challenge. accepted." <laughs> now, I didn't realize this at the time, but she also, she's like, is one of those type of people who rescue cats and animals and dogs. And, and so I was just her ultimate rescue. I was about to say, we're your project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. But then again, I mean, look how the project turned out. Uh, there's something to be said about her skill levels. Um, well, and if I would put it differently. There's something to be said about trying to deal with your own issues 
in a place where you feel safe. Beautifully said. In a place where Beautifully you know said. that somebody knows you for who you really are. They love you anyway. Now that well, you can say that's good judgment or bad judgment, but they love you anyway. <laughs> and they're willing to be. They don't. They're not willing to tolerate your bad behavior, but they're willing to be patient while you work on it. Beautiful. That is an amazingly powerful gift to have. Mm -hmm regardless and and so she gave me that sense of feeling um safe in, in that relationship and and i needed that i mm. needed that lack of judgment i needed that ability to say okay well i know you can do it just keep working on it and without the mm. without feeling condemned all the time when i failed mm. um and this is a woman who saw me react at one point and I started a business. I, it was a little bit, uh, there was reasons why I shouldn't have, and I I knew it in my head, but I tried to ignore them. We lost a lot of money. And mm -hmm. rather than holding it over me, she was able to walk past it, say, well, now we know. Now you've Ooh. learned. Ooh. And that's a, that's, a, that's a pretty special gift. So I've been fortunate. <laughs> and that's oh for crying out loud i mean what to say about that um i think that is that shows the fact that she has done a lot of work on herself um because without actually putting the oxygen on you first in an, in an aircraft accident mm -hmm. you can't look after others so that's the first thing i would observe there um having said that it is so so important what you say there, because here we are trying to do work, deal with the past, while meanwhile, meanwhile the, the present is there. And they're continuously challenging changes happening. I mean, the last three years were a bitch for absolutely everyone, um, okay. from COVID to um, workplace changes, to climate change, to disasters, you name it. Everyone okay. I know has been affected one way or the other, typically in a negative way. So here we are trying our best to to deal with ourselves when just the gods up there say, nah, come on here, have another spoon of shit on your plate and enjoy. Um, so and I know this is one of your passions because you are looking into the implications of a constantly changing world on us. So what the hell of a chance do we have as addicts to keep our acts together when continuously shit rains down on us. When we get to that point as addicts, that we realize that our addiction is not strengthened or weakened by our circumstances, it's strengthened and weakened by our inner resolve. Oh. When we can separate our, our, our um, sobriety from our circumstances. Right, because that's really kind of a um, a weakness is to is to use circumstances as an excuse for losing our sobriety. When so, when we get past that, so it shouldn't really matter if the circumstances is trouble with somebody at work or trouble in a marriage or um, you know trouble with our health it, 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 mm. or anxiety about the world. Um, if we can root our sobriety around self-love and self-respect, I'm no longer, there was a time when I was trying to stop drinking and modify my behavior so I didn't hurt other people. Now I'm at, the, you know, now, then it becomes a point where I'm not going to do it because I don't want to hurt myself. Mm. And, and, and there's a, there, you realize the benefits of that sobriety, the blessings of that yeah. sobriety. And, and so it, it's harder to get pulled back into it. Now, we are in, and I would argue that we're in probably the most unusual, unprecedented time of any time in history. Mm -hmm. um, on a global level, on a dynamic level, everywhere from uh, power, international travel, the fact that I could be talking to you uh, through this uh, a wired, wired thing and where I can see your face and we can interact in world time. Yeah. unprecedented levels of True. human engagement of uh, computing power nanotechnologies uh, material sciences medicine pharmaceuticals space exploration mm -hmm. and now this thing called artificial intelligence which within a very few 
few short years has is poised to basically be a super intelligence in things that we really don't know how to control uh, at climate mm. at politics and, mm. and world viruses water shortages food shortages mm. um we, we've got a we 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 have to look at the world without the the need for um, control. And one of the things that feeds our addiction is this desire that this belief that we have to be in control. But, you know, just, you know, the whole 12 step prayer, you know, mm -hmm. I, I need to, uh, you know, uh, well, I'm going to have a mental block on it, but basically <laughs> grant me the serenity to accept the yeah, things, accept I the things I, that I can't change yeah. uh, the, the wisdom, uh, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Exactly. There's, a plethora of things that we can't change right now. True. And so part of that same process of getting through our addictions with our, our life on a more personal level, I can, we should be expanding that that mentality to the world around us and say, well, I can't change mm. that. But yet I, it's a, still about my individual serenity. Mm. It's still about my individual sense of of groundedness and, and wholeness and peacefulness. Mm. And we're, we're dealing with the same issues. Mm. And so... Um, if I were to, you know, we've we've heard climate change models um, that are predicting some fairly serious ramifications on the world. Um, I recently read how an AI uh, went through and reran many of those models and came up with more pessimistic outcomes <laughs> than the human developers were, because yeah. as humans, we kind of were saying, well, it's not going to get that bad. We we don't want to sell the worst case scenario because everyone calls us alarmists. Mm. Um, but if we look at issues of economics, money, supply chain, um, national securities, China's getting more aggressive, Russia's getting more self-destructive, and there you have a Putin has a scorched earth strategy. He's willing to take the world down with him if he can't get what he mm. wants. Yeah. Um, we 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 see a lot of negative trajectories, mm. and if I were to run those just purely at a mathematical level, there's certainly a lot of reasons to feel alarmed mm. and the reasons to feel alarmed are not that we couldn't solve that if we wanted to i i, I constantly argue that as a um as a global community we have all of the technologies all of the financial resources all of the human resources to solve every problem facing mankind from water food education housing peace mm. um but we don't. Mm. And the reason we don't has solely to do with what's wrong in our spirit and our inability to basically find that, mm. get beyond our tribalism, get beyond our ideologies, get beyond our religious boundaries, to basically see each other as, see ourselves as connected, mm. and that if one part of us is hurting over here, even though it it's going to hurt everybody. And the only people who believe that that's not true are the people who are so wealthy that they can insulate themselves. <laughs> true. Very true. And so it, the problem is whether we can't fix it. The question that I usually raise is whether we will fix it in time. Huh. Or whether we have a tendency of waiting until it's a crisis and then we react in this very reactive way, oftentimes too little, too late. So, uh, but I can't let that bother me either, because mm. the reality is, is we all have an expiration date, every single one. Mm. Um, and it's not a question of when our expiration date will come up or how it will come up. The question that we were trying to resolve as, as, as former addicts is how do I live, a, how do I live my best life now? And best life isn't, doesn't mean self-indulgent life. Mm. Best life means most productive, most mm. loving, most mm. human-like, most filled with the most humanity, filled mm. with the most compassion. Mm. And those human connections are what make our lives important. How do I live my best life now while I still before my expiration date comes due, regardless mm. of which mm. of these crises might become part of my expiration date story? And that's almost irrelevant. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I deal with in my books in, in artificial intelligence is I basically use artificial intelligence to say, what if artificial intelligence could decode end-time prophecy? How would that change us and our behavior? 
and how would that basically in, infect us in terms of how we saw the world and, and what's going on? And I, I try to make the argument that it would be really no different than if a doctor were to say, hey, you've got something that's incurable, you've got maybe 10 years. Make sure it's worthwhile. Make sure you're spending those 10 years wisely so that at the end of it, you're leaving the right choices. And that's really what I think this is about. And we have to do, as addicts, we are forced to basically do that in a more intentional way than people who don't have those that that behavioral dysfunction that forces them into that choice pattern right <laughs> at the same token though please guy we have to say that this is actually a gift that we were given yeah. we we are we were forced to take good long hard looks at ourselves which led to us living intentional lives we are far more likely to stop for a moment and think okay hang on here this is my old behavior coming out again what's going on we see it as messengers uh messages to yeah. uh, from from our body and from our soul to say hey look uh, you know i'm hungry angry lonely tired um let's do something about that not reach to the bottle or go whatever addiction you were previously using as a rescue uh to escape your reality no we are exactly. now so we're better prepared exactly so i think that is actually an advantage and we have got the ability to model that and yeah. that model comes with doing the right things at the right time most of the times even if we do the wrong thing if we have a lapse ourselves when we make a mistake absolutely and yeah. that is again a, a way of modeling that to say okay fine i just slip back now what has happened and be open about it to your family yeah to your children who will see okay um that is it's okay to make a mistake but there is integrity there to own up to it and to to move forward and because the past does not equal the future and we have got at every single moment we have got the privilege of choice we can right. make decision and take action towards a life where we are proud to be the person where we think wow did i do that wow yeah okay and that is beautiful that is which gives me the, the fact the thing that gives me hope um there is a lot of shit happening uh very true in in my immediate um environment uh in the global environment that's absolutely mm -hmm. true and i felt i certainly fell in a pitfall over the last two months uh to be to have a bit of a pity party Oh, poor me, poor me, poor me, another one. Um, that kind of, of attitude. Right. Um, and it's so, it's it's destructive. And it's okay to, from now and then, have a pity party. But I'm pleased and that I'm... it doesn't I'm, have a productive end. There's, no. It doesn't really result in solving the issue. It doesn't no. really result in helping us feel better about no. ourselves or our situation. Not at all. Yeah, exactly. It, it's sort of a, you know, kind of a, a pointless loop. Um, but you're right. And it's okay that we fall back into that. You know, there's, we have to go through these cycles and, and mm. even that's okay to kind of get into that cycle for a little while. As long as at some point in time we say, okay, this isn't helping. Mm. If I can't change, if I, if I can't, if I can't change that, can I accept that? Mm. And then what can I change? And, and, and then mm. find the courage for that. Mm. And I think that's, it's a, the, the same process we had to go through in dealing with um, addictions is is sort of the same the same process we have to go through in dealing with the the scary parts of the world right now. I like that. I liked yeah. it a lot. <laughs> We've got our work cut out. No two ways around yeah, that. Yeah. But then again, as that's true. But again, here we are coming more closely together today i meet you we are are finding out wow we have got the same passions so here is a potential alliance to be made and can you imagine if we find others who are equally equal minded and we say well actually let's put a bit of our efforts together and say which 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 of the the topics shall we address 
And that is the powerful way forward. The opposite yeah. to addiction is connection. And here we are, we are connecting and we are opening up. And by being open about that, we are actually showing the strength that is inherent in each of us. And if we just harness that strength and put a a direction, a moral direction there uh, into, into where we want to go, I mean, wow, what can we achieve? I don't, even in the worst of circumstances, history and experience can show us that we can still have an impact on somebody's life. Mm. True. Very nicely and, said. Yeah. And that's, I think that's where, you know, uh, again, where, where our focus needs to be, which is, you know, what are the things I can change and, and, you know, how do I find the courage to do that? Mm. And, and that's important because there are going to be things that we're not going to be able to control. I have no control over some of the, uh, over the war in Ukraine. I have no control over the threats around Taiwan. I have no control mm. over um, the threats in my own government and my own uh, political systems. I, but I do have control over a lot of other things. I have mm. control over how I respond to those things. I have control over my own the friendships. I have control over what the things I can do to make a little bit of a difference in somebody, mm. somebody's life. Maybe not everybody's, but somebody. Mm. Um, I don't have to affect the whole world. I just need to make sure that I'm affecting the life right in front of me. Nice. And um, and so yeah, it it and I think that's one of the reasons I write the books is is to try and put all of these other larger issues in perspective to those individual choices. Beautiful, guy. If if I mean I certainly want to learn more about your books <laughs> as a little bit of homework. I'm looking forward to do. Where can one story? I'll say tell you two things. Every single book is is deeply rooted on real events. Some of them happen directly to me, but real truths, real events, real technologies, politics, history, etc. I'll tell you one story that I like to tell people because it's a fun story. Um, the books that deal with artificial intelligence and espionage and all this kind of stuff. It started. When I um, asked, I came across an Associated Press article, just a little short two-paragraph article, that basically said that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia, which is a well-known NSA spy lab. They do the Suxnet virus. They yeah. do cryptology. I spent months. I, I was floored by that by that little blurb, and and didn't say it was lost or stolen or corrupted. It said it was escaped. And so I spent months trying to figure out exactly how a program, a spy program, could escape the NSA spy labs. And then, because that implied it had some kind of intent, uh, that implied some level of intelligence, implied the ability for it to move itself, and then erase the log trails so that the it's gone, the NSA doesn't know how to find it. And so then I spent months more saying, well, what kind of program did the NSA need to have stealth technologies for, yeah. right? What, what did they want this stealth program to do? About the time I finished doing that, we produced a webisode series that won all kinds of awards. It got optioned by one of the studios. Two weeks before the studio was going to sign the option, two FBI agents showed up at my door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They were rather perturbed that I had figured out something they thought for sure was top secret. My wife, I thought it was, I was, I was giggling. I thought this was perfect. I nailed it. I must have nailed it. My wife was not so happy. She pulled me aside. She was saying, why are there two FBI agents in my dining room? What did you do, buddy? <laughs> Priceless. Priceless. Okay. <laughs> well, but that's, that's the reality. These are the things that we are facing. Uh, yeah. in our in in 2023 um things do escape out of labs some in china some in yeah. in the <laughs> united states so it's just a question of when and what is next um and i like the way you're thinking um but i also am intrigued about the way that you're going about uh creating those stories wrapping the storytelling um into the or wrapping the events uh with storytelling into something that hopefully your readers read and then say huh and and I, ponder that's that's my intent is i i could write just a thriller that's just a generic thriller and, and mm. there's a lot of those out there 
but I infuse my fiction with a real healthy amount of fact because I want to blend that line between mm. a fiction and reality and, and have that be, have that sense of plausibility mm. this really could happen, uh, be part of that storytelling um, technique. So my, my characters and my plots are fictional, but everything underneath that is factual, which helps pull a lot of these things together and gives it that sense of Yes, that that could happen. And it could happen soon, and wow. and and getting people to think. Well, what do I think about that? What what are my beliefs about that? Or what yeah. do I, how would I react to that? Um, and and I I think that makes for a really compelling narrative. And I think Tolstoy did this um, when he was talking about the transition between imperialism to communism. Uh, Mark Twain did it when he talked about racism in the South and that culture. Um, Michael Crichton did it when he talked about DNA splicing and, and cloning in, in Jurassic Park. Yeah. Um, Dan Brown did it when he talked about um, theories around um, Mary Magdalene and Christ. And when you can blend the, the, the fact and the fiction really closely together in a clever way, I, I think it just makes it, uh, the story a lot more fun. Oh, hell yes. Hell yes. I love it. What was your most recent book? And where can we find your books and more information about you? Uh, well, the, the easy question first, which is that you can go to guymorrisbooks.com and you'll find um, uh, all the books, uh, all three books. I'm working on the fourth one now. You'll get buy links to where you can find the book. Uh, you'll get highlights and links to all the major reviews and awards. Uh, you'll see my social media and my other podcasts and uh, media kit. Uh, there's fact versus fiction pages because I try to be very transparent about saying oh. what's fact, fact, fact. Okay, now this part I just made Ooh, up. Nice. Um, so that there's some transparency there. In some cases, I'll provide a link to an article if it's something that <laughs> others, like when I talk about a program being able to rewrite its own code, uh, rather than trying to just tell people that's a fact, I'll, I'll link to some of the, the articles and research. Uh, and there's some videos as well as the location shots of the locations that where these things actually took place. So that's that's the best place to go. My latest Beautiful. book, Last Arc, is a continuation on of my espionage, artificial intelligence espionage series. It's the second in the series, and it deals with sort of the supposed prophetic uh, issue of a third temple. And it's based on that there's a couple, there's a number of true stories in it about artificial intelligence and cyber and AI data poisoning and real issues with the RAND Corp, based on a RAND Corporation report to the DOD. But the last, the term, the last arc, the title of the last arc came from two stories that are true. Um, most people, I don't know if you if you know about this, but a lot of people know that there's a there was an Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. It originally left uh, um, Jerusalem 2,600 years ago with Solomon's son, Menenlech, uh, and 500 priests. They, they built a temple on Elephant Island and, and, and on the Nile River in Egypt, where it was in temple worship for several hundred years until the second century, when the Romans came and they chased them away. They went in synagogues in Ethiopia, and then the Templars came and moved it into churches. All of that is well documented. There's there's uh, there's um, there's um, scrolls and papyri and archaeology and ruins and 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 history books that that cover all of that. What most people don't know is that in January 21, an Ethiopian militia group stormed the city of Aksum, stormed this particular church. 750 men, women, and children were massacred. This, this ark was then stolen and sold on the black market. So the last arcs deals with who had the political power, the money, and the will to own this ancient Jewish relic and why. That combines with a second arc. Now, in the 1960s, outside of this, uh, the Qumran by the Dead Sea, where all of the Dead Sea scrolls were found, uh, archaeologists found a copper scroll about 18 inches high and about six, eight inches wide. And it took them for years to, and but they didn't find it with the other scrolls, which were in jars. They would hit, this one was hidden behind a fake mud, um, mud wall. So it was basically meant not to be discovered. And they discovered it by accident. And it took them years to unravel this very brittle copper and read it. And when they did, they found that it had 64 locations where pre-Babylonian temple priests had hidden tens of tons, billions and billions of dollars worth of temple treasures. 
And uh, in the 64th location is a second copper scroll that describes where Jeremiah hid the Ark of Testimony made by Moses. Now, that story of Jeremiah and his scribe Barak hiding the temple treasures and the Ark of the Testimony was included in the second book of Maccabees. So there's an historical uh, foundation for that story. Now, for 50 years, people have been trying to find these locations and, and failing because they were all looking in the city of Jerusalem. About six, seven years ago, an American came along and actually decoded all 64 locations underneath the ruins of Qumran itself. He was able to convince not only the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is their priest group that in charge of the temple, but they were able to convince the Israeli archaeology and antiquities group to go do a metal scan, do a survey. They found non-ferrous metals under every single location, but they only dug down around two feet, even though the scroll said to dig down around nine to 12 feet, because they wanted to kill the rumors that there was something there. The reason is, is because this Qumran is part of the Palestinian West Bank. By law, anything that Israel would dig up and find there would go into this um, tribunal kind of, of warehouse, and they'd never see it again. That was also about the same time they started talking about a single state solution. So we now have two arcs of the covenant that are basically attainable, either already in possession of somebody or uh, easily attainable with a little bit of excavation. Um, and we know exactly which location has the second copper scroll that could dramatically change the geopolitics of the of the Middle East. Damn. So those were two of the pieces of that of research that went into um, the second, the last arc, which is that that last book. I can't wait to read it, man. I can't wait to read that, it. It's <laughs> Excellent. So, guys. Um, you listeners, viewers out there, look down there into the description of the uh, YouTube video of the podcast. You see guys' links down there. Uh, I don't know about you, but <laughs> I know what I'll read next. <laughs> so that's cool. Guy, you're an amazing man. Uh, the question is, what happens now? You're working on your fourth book. Um, are you reinventing yourself? Or is that for the time being, are you have you have you tasted blood? Do you love to be the author who can research things, who who can make others think? I, I right now I'm enjoying doing that. I've also started an author group that takes other authors, including myself, to all kinds of different events, festivals, and fairs in the local area where we'll be busy selling books every weekend from the first oh, nice. week of May to the mid-October. Uh, and then I'm working with a PR consultant to, uh, because of my expertise in artificial intelligence and cyber espionage and the, all the technology issues affecting those things, um, she's working with me to uh, land some television spots by by this time next year. Brilliant. So oh, I'm wow. trying to constantly reinvent myself and do things I hadn't done. But I really am enjoying the whole author perspective because I do get to do meaningful research into real mm. issues, most of which most people aren't really well aware of. I don't need to write sci-fi for AI to, in order to find the the, um, the possible scenarios of, gee, what could go wrong um, <laughs> in, the, in the, the immediate yeah. you know, next year or two kind of future. So I'm kind of just yeah. focusing on that. And I, I, I do intentionally, I write every book saying I'm, I'm hoping I can get people to think about these issues uh, in a new way. Mm. Guy, you're an amazing man. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. You certainly made my day today. Um, and you certainly made me think a lot. So for that, I'm very grateful to you. Thank you, sir. And you guys out there, look after yourself and live with passion. Bye. <laughs> I never give up. I never give up. I never give up. Turn around.